Pastor Ed Taylor on how to move from condemnation to forgiveness in Christ. The weight of condemnation can destroy a person. The weight of condemnation can make a person suicidal. The, the weight of condemnation with a sense of hopelessness can make a person feel like there's just nothing left for them. And the way to get out from under condemnation of the law is to take the blood of Jesus Christ who took that penalty of the law for you. That's the way to get out from under it. The mercy seat for the children of Israel represented the covering of their sin. That, that which condemned them was covered by the blood. This is amazing grace. It is time once again for Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We hope you're having a great day in the Lord and that you're ready to get back into 1 Kings with us. We left off at chapter 8. Well, maybe you can relate to what Pastor Ed was talking about a moment ago. You are living under condemnation. I'm happy to say Jesus can set you free from that guilt and shame. And that's pictured for us way back here in the Old Testament. Here's Pastor Ed with a few of the lessons we can glean from the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. In our study in 1 Kings, we're watching and learning from the transition from King David to his son Solomon. And if there's anything that we've learned through David's life and through his, the life of God dealing with his people is that God loves his covenant people. He cares for them. He leads, guides, protects them, gives them order in life. The nation of Israel is the apple of his eye. And he desires that they be led by spiritual, godly men. That's God's desire, godly leadership. Remember, even though we've looked at King David, and we know prior to King David was King Saul, and now after King David is Solomon, it wasn't God's heart for the nation of Israel to have a king. God's first and de greatest desire was for them to be led, led by godly men. But there was a lack of godly men and a discouragement among the people. And the people rose up and they demanded a king because they wanted a king like everyone else. They wanted credibility in the world. Listen, there's those times in our lives where we desire that credibility in the world. But you can't have it both ways. When you and I, we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, when we were born again... Whether you verbalized it or not, you and I, we became foreign to this world. And if we're not careful, we'll start to want the things of the world that are contrary to God. But here's the thing with God. Even though the elders of the past asked Saul for Saul to be their king, God warned them of the consequences. He told them, this is what you're going to get when you get a king. It's not going to be what you think. He's going to take your kids, the best of your kids, and consign them to war. And he's going to take your stuff, which what we would look at today is he was, he's going to tax you for all the things that he does. He's going to have to get his money from somewhere, and the king's going to get it from you. And he warned them ahead of time. And they said they, and when they didn't pay attention to the warnings in Scripture and asked for a king nonetheless. 
And yet, like the nation of Israel, even in our own decisions, because how many of us can say it, and there really isn't any one of us that can say that we've made every right decision, done every right thing with God. None of us have clean hands. None of us make every right decision. None of us completely follow the word of God every day, all day, all the time. None of us do. Our hearts, the Bible says, are deceitfully wicked. Who can know them? The Lord, he knows. So even in our own failures, we learn from the nation of Israel, we learn in our own lives, that even in our own failures, God will condescend to our level and be gracious to us. And he is. And he was to them and he is to us to meet us where we are, to seek to lift us up to a higher level. He says, here, go this way. And we say, no, we want to go this way. And God will meet us over here and say, no, here, go this way. Sometimes that comes in the form of encouragement in Bible study. Sometimes that comes in the form of exhortation. But many times that here, go this way, comes in the form of correction or chastisement or consequences from our own sinful decisions. But God, he meets us. And he's meeting the children of Israel here, and he gave them a good king, David. He wasn't a perfect king, but he was a good king, a man after God's own heart. And now his son, Solomon, is in the early stages of his life. Many believe, and I think from the testimony of Scripture, I agree that he's in the best years of his life, the early years. What we might call in our lives the new believer years, which is unfortunate that we have to go through that. But just like children, we grow up. So we have the early years where we're completely dependent upon the father. And then we get into those adolescent years where we think we don't need our parents anymore. Then we get into the teenage years where we really turn away. Then we get, you know, it's, it's the same way, so similar in our life walking with Jesus. We start dependent. Then we kind of feel like we're not. We want to be independent. Then we get really independent. Then we want to go home. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have ever thought this, but I have. Like, you know, my high school years were so bad that part of me would like to go and redo them. I'd like to do them over again because I think if I knew the Lord back then, I could do so much better. I mean, I was such a rotten person. But also, I would just like to go back and be a kid again. It would be all right to not have any worries and just eat uh, lollipops and brownies all the time, which is, and Reese peanut butter cups was basically what I spent my life doing as a kid. And just getting mad that the dinner wasn't ready or whatever. Like, just feed me my dinner, you know? And like, just be dependent again and not have all this responsibility that we live with as adults. You ever feel that way? Is that just me? Probably not the Reese's peanut butter, I'm sure, but whatever it is for you. So here's Solomon, verse 1. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes of the chiefs, fathers of the children of Israel, the King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Mark that. We're going to spend a little bit of time reminding you of the Ark of the Covenant uh, of the Lord, the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. And they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Verse 5. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that cannot be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord in its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim sped, spread their two wings over the place of the ark and the cherubim overshadowed the ark in its poles." And the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place. 
in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, so they were there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb. And the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel that they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place and the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest, verse 11, could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Verse 12. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud and I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Hold your places here. Turn back to Exodus chapter 25. For the sake of those that have never been introduced to the Ark of the Covenant, let's be reminded of studies that we did many, many years ago in the book of Exodus uh, of what the Ark of the Covenant actually is. Exodus chapter 25, we're going to pick up there in verse 8, because this same Ark now is being brought into the temple, the temple that Solomon just built, the temple that he built, with, remember, with great urgency. He, he, he built the temple much faster than he built. It was a much more detailed project, but he built it faster than he built his own house. There was an urgency about it. And so now we find they're bringing in the furnishings. And in Exodus chapter 25, notice with me verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half shall be its width, and a cubit and a half is its height. So basically a four by two by two wooden box made of acacia wood. Verse 11. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, put them in the four corners, two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length, cubit and a half its width, and you shall make two cherubim, of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub on the other end. You shall make the cherub, cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. The mercy seat basically is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And cherubim, verse 20, shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall have face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In the ark you shall put the testimony I will give you. And I, there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are the ark of the testimony of all the things which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So it's a box, four by two by two, overlaid in pure gold inside and out. There were rings put on the four corners so that long poles would go in and that's how it would be carried. Uh, the inside there would be three items, a copy of the Ten Commandments, the testimony, later Aaron's rod, and a jar of manna. And they all had significant representations. However, for the typology, just for our time tonight, I want to focus in on the acacia wood part of the typology because it speaks so much of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like everything that God did was pointing toward coming of Messiah. 
Everything that God did in the tabernacle and in the temple had significance of the coming of Messiah, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Acacia wood was a harder, darker wood that would last a long time and take a beating. Jesus took a beating for you and me being eternal. Acacia wood grew in dry, arid climates. The Bible describes Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Acacia wood, which actually came from a bush-like tree, was actually the type of wood that they would gather the thorns from. It was a thorny bush. And we know that there was a a crown of thorns pressed into the head of Jesus Christ. Acacia wood had a unique property that the Bedouins would pierce the bush for a gum resin that would come out of its trunk. And they would take that resin and use it as a healing balm for those that were hurt and injured. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it says that Jesus was wounded for our transgression and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. I know that many of you weren't around when we were doing Thursday night Bible study uh, way back when, uh, but on Thursday nights we studied through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all five of those books. And all those studies are up on our website and up on our, on our app. So if you really want a a neat study on the typology of the tabernacle coming through from Genesis, looking at all the, all those, um, that the, the men that God used and establishes his, his nation through all the way through to the end with Joseph and then coming in with Moses in Exodus all the way through, uh, to Deuteronomy, I would encourage you to listen to those studies, specifically Exodus, because we go into much more depth on the typology of everything in the tabernacle. And it's very, very very powerful. Um, Like everything in the Bible means something. There's that move today just to move to the New Testament, New Testament, New Testament, New Testament. And listen, we do live in the New Covenant. But to understand the New Testament, you've got to understand the Old Testament. They go together. Like what is hidden in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Like God is opening eyes. Like, man, the things that the Bible says, the, the Bible tells us the things that prophets were looking into, we get to know today. But it's good to know where they sat and what they received. Do you know the very, the, the beginning of the church, uh, the early church? Well, let's take Jesus, for example. He taught the new covenant from the Old Testament. The early church, through the first hundred years of the early church, they taught the new covenant from the old covenant. You got to know them both. And so we've gone through quite a bit. And that's part of why we're sticking with the life and times of David and Solomon. We'll get into all the kings, understand the history, because it's powerful stuff. Now, The mercy seat we read was the lid, and it had two cherubim on top uh, of gold, one on each end, their wings outstretched and put on top, and inside were the Ten Commandments, and also the, as we saw, the manna, the faithfulness of God, and Aaron's rod. And so glorious a piece of furniture that this is the one that would go on top. Now, I thought it was interesting. If you're still in Exodus, let me just look at it real quick. Let me read it to you. I brought this out in my notes, and I don't want to miss it here. Back in Exodus 25, God says, let's see, in verse 22, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, of all the things which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. 
This is the only time we read of God saying that he's going to meet at a specific location was right here on the mercy seat. This is the only time we read of him saying, I will meet you personally at the mercy seat. Because this box was God's solution to the gulf between man and himself. It was the place where failures were covered, where sins were dealt with on the mercy seat. This would be the place where God manifested his presence in a localized way, where he accepted the blood that atoned for the sins of the people according to Leviticus chapter 16. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that the law inside that once was condemning was covered by blood. That if you can picture this little box with the, with the angels on top, if you go to Israel with us, we'll take you into the Temple Institute and the last thing we visit in the Temple Institute is a recreation of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. And it was there at the Ark of the Covenant that inside the law, the law is not what we live our lives by because the law only reveals that we're failures. <laughs> That's the only reason the law exists. The law exists to be a tutor to us, to teach us in our own ability and, and our own strength. We cannot meet up to God's standards. I mean, in any way, not, there, there's many purposes, you know, practical purposes, but from a spiritual perspective, the Bible says the law is our tutor. It's our schoolmaster. And the lesson it wants to teach us is that you need Jesus Christ. That's the lesson. And so if you come and, you know, sometimes we'll meet people and go, well, I'm a Ten Commandment kind of Christian. That's who I am. I'm a Ten Commandment, and I just keep the Ten Commandments. Well, you, 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 don't, you don't actually keep Ten Commandments perfectly, and you haven't your whole life. A, a careful examination of your life and mine would find we probably have committed more sin uh, than we're willing to admit. But only, it only takes one. It doesn't take a million. It just takes one sin to recognize that the law condemns us. If you are speeding and you, you get pulled over, which would be totally ironic, but you get pulled over right next to the speed limit sign and the speed limit sign says 25 and the officer says you were going 35, that sign condemns you. It doesn't encourage you. You say, officer, officer, I didn't see the... Okay, I didn't see that sign. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't give me a break, you know. And you start to get out of it. But that sign, all it says to you is you're a lawbreaker. And now it says that to you whether you get pulled over or not. But when you get pulled over, the police officer is like the Holy Spirit confirming it all for you. <laughs> Saying, I know you got, I know you thought you were going to get away with it. I know you got away with it every day on the way to work, but not today. And I just don't, 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 don't be bent out of shape when you get a ticket. Because speeding hurts people. Speeding is not... It's one of those sins of kind of Christians I can do, you know, kind of like gossip. Gossip's not that big a deal. We're kind of like bagging on people on Facebook. It's not big a deal. Speeding's not big a deal. Look, if you get used to breaking the law, you're going to break more law. And when you and I break the law, we're condemned by the law. That's true in the practical realm, and it's also true in the spiritual realm. But you know, they, they put up speed limits for a reason. You know, they want you to slow down, like in our community. Our community's kind of a pass-through and they use it like a freeway to get from one side to the other. And many, many people that don't live in our little community shoot right through. But you know, kids play on those streets. They play in their front yards. Now I notice, you know, that people are getting so up in arms in our neighborhood where their signs is, you know, drive like your kids live here. Those are signs now in our community. I mean, nobody should be able, nobody should have to tell us to do that. 
But for those that are driving around and, and there's a quick corner in our neighborhood, so that, that sign is actually right after the quick corner. So obviously they put it up. Maybe their kids accidentally ran out one time. Maybe there was five close calls one time. Maybe somebody didn't make that turn so well and this tire screech, whatever. That sign is just somebody saying, would you please do what's right? And every time you don't, you pass that sign and don't do it. Like, like uh, for me, I don't tend to speed. I'm not saying I don't speed, but like I'm not in a hurry. I like leaving early. I, I mean, I'm sure I go over the speed limit, but it's not, I don't do it on purpose. I mean, seriously, I don't do it on purpose. I'm not, I'm not usually in a hurry. But when I drive by that sign, I always remind myself, my kids live in this neighborhood, so I do drive like that. I mean, they're not kid, little kids anymore, but my kids live in this neighborhood, so I, I agree with them. I agree with them. The law is condemning. Spiritually, the law is condemning. The problem is we don't agree. And the weight of condemnation can destroy a person. The weight of condemnation can make a person suicidal. The the weight of condemnation with a sense of hopelessness can make a person feel like there's just nothing left for them. And the way to get out from under condemnation of the law is to take the blood of Jesus Christ who took that penalty of the law for you. That's the way to get out from under it. The mercy seat for the children of Israel represented the covering of their sin. That that which condemned them was covered by the blood. It's such a powerful picture. Don't miss this. This is what God is saying. I will meet you. I will meet with you. I will speak with you. I will give you. And God is the initiator. I will help you if you meet me here. That's all you got to do is meet him. He'll do the work. You and I meet him. He'll do the work. He has finished the work on the cross for us. But for the children of Israel, if you will just meet me here, if you will just meet me here, I'll minister to you. Where? At the mercy seat. On the ark. God is the initiator in our relationship. We're the responders. He will do for man what man cannot do for himself. We can't remove the condemnation. Even an unbeliever has a conscience. And we as believers have our conscience replaced by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not like we don't have a conscience anymore, but it's far better to have the Holy Spirit living in you. See, it brings to mind uh, so many things that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us. But we can't remove condemnation. You know, burying your condemnation in alcohol doesn't work. It, it doesn't, doesn't work. As a matter of fact, it makes things worse because alcohol is a, a drug. It's a depressant. It, it works with that part of our, our physiological part and the spiritual part when we're under the influence to heighten condemnation. Whether it's heightened after you're sober or for some people, just getting drunk makes them more condemned. They go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but now I'm drunk, so I can't do anything about it. And then maybe you do something while you're drunk. You wake up in jail. I mean, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to live in a numbed way the rest of your life. The blood of Jesus Christ can release you. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. Stop by AboundingGraceRadio.com if you'd like a replay. Or listen to Abounding Grace through our free app. Search for Calvary Church or Ed Taylor and download that today. 
You know, we've been blessed in recent months as we hear from people who have called or written to let us know that they listen and how God is doing a great work through the teaching of His Word. We are so thankful to God for this. And if you'd like to share your story, please email us through our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com. We really do want to hear from you. And we also have a book we'd like to get into your hands that can help set you free from your past. It's Pastor Ed's latest book, and it's just been published and released. In Free From Your Past, you'll learn the difference between self-condemnation and the Holy Spirit's conviction. Also, the source of self-condemnation, the real freedom forgiveness gives, how to effectively deal with your anger, and tips to help you walk in your God-given identity in Christ. Free From Your Past our featured resource this month. Request a copy when you give a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. We're here to serve you at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. Or order it online at calvaryco.store. And thank you for helping us get the word out on stations like this one. As you partner with us, it's thrilling to see how God uses it in great ways to bless and encourage so many lives through the radio and the Internet. Another convenient way to make a donation is online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Thank you. Celebrating God's faithfulness and goodness, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Until next time, may God richly bless you with His abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora. 